0: One of the issues having to do with trade and the United States and China is technology. For example, Micron Technology said a ban on the sale of some of its products in China is unfair but won't hurt its earnings. Here to tell us more about how chip makers are trapped in the U.S.-China crossfire is our own Shira Ovide, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And of course, you can follow Shira on Twitter at Shira Ovide. All right, Shira, tell us about the chip companies and why this has been a back and forth, because it has to do not just with tariffs, but then it has to do with the imposition of bans about what kinds of products can be sold between the two countries.
2: Right. So there's two issues at play here that involve computer chip makers, U.S. chip makers. So uh, I think much to the surprise and chagrin of U.S. chip makers, on the list of the first wave of U.S. tariffs of goods coming from China are some products that impact U.S. chip makers. So, again they the trade group for the chip companies said we're in this weird position where some of the products that are coming from US chip companies that get sent to China for sort of testing or some minor assembly and then sent back to the US or other countries they're being subject to this tariff right so you have US tariffs that are trying to protect US companies that are then being forced to absorb tariffs in some of these cases, um, which I think again was surprising to U.S. chip companies.
0: Now let's just take maybe just one example, because yep. I I know that you know not all chips are created equal. Sure. Right. Um, Micron, which has been the the sort of the poster child for this whole thing, it, it has to do the the issue with Micron has to do with a Taiwanese chip maker as well, United Microelectronics, they're based in Taiwan. Correct?
2: Right. So the, the issue that Micron has is somewhat separate from the tariff issue. So they have been sued, Micron, which is based in Boise, Idaho, that makes these kind of memory chips that are essential in basically anything that has a computer brain. So that includes smartphones, that includes supercomputers and everything in between. So they've been sued for patent infringement in China by both a Chinese company and a Taiwanese company. And what Micron says is this law, Suit, which is basically accusing them of stealing, um, uh, you know, proprietary technology from this Taiwanese and Chinese companies. Like for companies. their uh,
0: graphics cards, right? Graphics Computer cards. graphics right. cards.
2: So what Micron says is basically this lawsuit is a ruse um, to uh, to cover up for Chinese intellectual property theft of Micron's own technology. so And Micron believes that this is politically motivated, that this is part of China's kind of um, attempt to develop a homegrown computer chip industry, and that part of that effort, Micron says, is to kind of steal from American companies, and they feel like, Micron feels like they're caught in this kind of U.S.-China uh, battle over the future of technology.
0: Okay, so that's Micron's case. That now Micron's let's case. go to another patient. This has <laughs> to do with quality. Alcom it wants to acquire NXP yep. semiconductor but like in any situation, you have to get government approval, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So Qualcomm, again, like Micron, feels like it's kind of caught in the crossfire between the U.S. and China uh, trade war, that they have been trying to buy this Dutch uh, chip maker, NXP, for 18 months, I think. And the last regulatory approval is the Chinese antitrust body. And Qualcomm has said, uh, with some justification, that they believe that regulatory approval in China is being held up because of retaliation perhaps for the U.S. um, essentially banning or uh, imposing a death sentence on ZTE, which is this um, Chinese telecom company that broke... US, um, U.S. law by selling uh, goods to Iran and other banned countries and then lying about it. Uh, it looks like ZTE is back in the U.S. government's good graces after, you know, a big fine and some management changes. So we'll see if that impacts the um, speed of regulatory approval for the Qualcomm NXP deal.
0: Do you have a big whiteboard by your desk in order to sort of diagram all of the connections here? Because I'm going to go go even deeper here, which is that the chips that Micron makes are very likely sold or shipped to China and then put into products, maybe, let's say, smartphones, right, that are then sold to customers in the United States and Europe.
2: Correct. Yeah, it it is very complicated. And I was asking uh, folks in the chip industry yesterday, is it possible that they could be hit by tariffs on both sides of this trade war? Could they be subject to U.S. tariffs on some products and Chinese tariffs on some products? And the answer that I got was they're not really sure. But it's possible, which would be mind-blowing.
0: And... The companies that we've just talked about, Micron, Qualcomm, NXP, they're not the only ones. We've got Broadcom, Texas Instruments, AMD, Microchip Technology, Intel, NVIDIA, and Analog Devices. All of these companies produce a decent amount of revenue in China,
2: yeah, I mean, look, uh, China is right now the world's biggest uh, buyer of of computer chips. Um, that if you look at U.S. exports by revenue, uh, computer chips are number four behind things like airplanes and cars and oil. So you know this is a big U.S. export with a lot of powerful uh, and big U.S. companies. And computer chips are also again the you know the the, the beating heart of China's made. Made in China 2025 initiative to develop more homegrown technology. So it's inevitable that these U.S. chip makers are getting kind of caught in this power play between the U.S. and China, where China is both the their biggest customer in many cases, and also this kind of source of tension between their home country, the United States, and their biggest market, China.
0: Is it worth noting that nobody forced these companies to put their production? Let's say if they have production in China in China. They went there because the scale and the cost makes it possible to then buy a smartphone that costs whatever it is but allows everybody to make a decent profit on it.
2: Yeah, and that's a, that's a totally fair point that look, the supply chain for a lot of products including computer chips is very global. That you do have these huge um factories in China that have developed expertise over the years in you know certain discrete elements of the computer chip manufacturing process, and the same is true in Vietnam and Malaysia and the United States and and other countries. You know they have developed these um, specialties in certain aspects of smartphone uh, manufacturing, testing, and assembly. And right now, I think what you're seeing in the computer chip industry is some questioning about do we need to adjust the supply chain as it has developed over the last decades to kind of reflect this fear of globalization being crimped in various corners of the world. So it's it's really interesting right now. A little, little
0: bit of an irony when you think of all of the uh, sort of uh, uh, market-driven decisions that are made, and yet they end up being political in terms everything of everything is political. Uh, everything now. is political now. Thanks very much. Shira Ovide. Uh, our technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Check out all her stuff on Bloomberg dot com slash opinion and follow her on Twitter at Shira Oviday. Unemployment rate moved to higher in June from an 18-year low. Steady hiring and an increased number of job seekers Continue to support the labor market. U.S. non-farm payrolls rose a seasonally adjusted two hundred and thirteen thousand in June. Here to tell us more about the report and its implications is Chris Lou. He is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He's a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Barack Obama. He can be followed on Twitter at Chris forty-four. All right, Chris Lou forty-four. I want to focus first on wages and the increase that we saw, I believe it was 2.7 percent, do you believe that at that level we could get to a 4 percent annual GDP rate?
3: I don't, Uh, and I think that is really the concerning part of an otherwise strong jobs numbers. We have been in this kind of 2.5, I think we were up to 2.8 percent increase last month. 27 is just not enough, and particularly when you consider that uh, inflation right now is running 2.8%, that effectively means that most workers aren't seeing any more money uh, than they did a year ago, and so... we we are in a very difficult situation right now where the Fed um, hasn't quite decided where they want to go on rates, which will have an effect on wages. We're starting to wonder whether this jobs market is different than what we have always thought, which is if you're down in this level of unemployment, you'd expect wages to be going up much, much faster. So, um, you know, I think it's concerning, and I think many of us are starting to wonder whether this economy is fundamentally different than what it used to be.
0: Well, take that a little bit further and tell us if you had to explore that idea of a fundamentally different economy, what do you mean by that?
3: Well, look, you would think when you have normally a tightening labor market, a couple things happen. People come off the sidelines, which is what happened this month, and it's one of the reasons why the unemployment rate ticked up from three point eight to four percent and that's a good thing but you would also think that in this tightening job market employers would have to pay more uh... to entice workers to come there and it just hasn't happened and you know we know that there are some solutions to this uh, obviously job training is important in helping people advance to more skilled jobs uh... high-paying jobs like manufacturing and construction are another good answers and it's one of the reasons why infrastructure is always a bipartisan policy idea uh, raising the federal minimum wage and state minimum wages would have an effect as well. Uh, but we also may be in, trapped in a situation where we now have a perpetual class of people who are doing relatively unskilled labor uh, at basically minimum wages who just can't get out of that trap right now. Uh, and that's concerning.
0: Well, to your point, uh, in June, the share of American adults working or looking for a job rose by two-tenths of a percentage point. That number now is 62.9 percent, and it is up from that low of uh, 62.3. That was in, in 2015. Right. But it's like, ne- it's like the smallest share of adults participating <laughs> since the late 1970s. This is not something that is brand new, is it?
3: No, that's exactly right. I mean, throughout most of the Obama administration and now the Trump administration, the, the figure you're citing, the labor force participation, has basically been between about 62 percent and 63 percent. And that's declined steadily since the mid 1970s now in part it's because of changes in the demographics of the workforce we have a lot of people retiring earlier we have more people in school so and that's a good thing we you know we're looking at labor force participation which goes all the way down to people age 16 so we don't necessarily want all of them in the workforce but it does suggest that we have far too many people on the sidelines right now either because they couldn't find jobs which was the case a couple years ago or Uh, Because the jobs weren't there or because they're not trained for the jobs. And that second part, if that's true, is something that we really need to address as a country.
0: Okay, so would it be possible to address that more efficiently if the Department of Labor and the Department of Education were combined?
3: Well, look, that's actually one of the theories of uh, the president's reorganization proposal that he came out with a couple weeks ago. Um, look, there, there is certainly a synergy between education and training uh, in, in, in the federal government, but there are also about nine different federal agencies that deal with training. Uh, and the overlap between those agencies is actually relatively small. And having been at one end of um, looking at that, we function very well. The bigger problem is we're not actually investing enough money. The share of money that we put in as the federal government into job training pales in comparison to what Germany and other countries put in. Uh, We don't really have a national job training strategy. It really is done state by state. And we haven't invested sufficiently in proven job training methods like apprenticeships, which are wildly uh, popular and successful in Europe.
0: Why haven't we been successful at that? Is it just money?
3: Well, it is money, but it's also the way that uh, employers operate. Uh, Employers tend to um, uh, train their own workers, uh, and there's less incentive, frankly, to create a broader pipeline of workers. So what uh, companies will do in an industry is that they will fight over uh, a share of the pie instead of working collaboratively to increase the pie, which is what uh, companies do in other countries. They invest in job training programs that, let's say, create more plumbers and machinists, understanding that they may not be able to hire those people, but that's good for the overall industry. So companies need to start thinking about job training in a more collaborative way.
0: Do you believe that that may also uh, be a result of states, individual states, competing with each other in order to grab businesses because they think of it just as a state's issue rather than a national issue?
3: Well, that's, exactly, that, that's a fantastic point. Far too often when states are trying to lure companies there, um, they just drop their tax rates. They provide tax incentives to companies. And far too often when you talk to companies, they'll say, look – Tax, low tax rates are fantastic, but it doesn't help when we get there and we can't find the trained workers we need to fill our factories. And so, far more now, com- states are starting to understand: if we really want to attract companies, we need to have a uh, integrated t- job training program. And it's one of the reasons why you continue to see more companies going to more urban areas where they can find the trained workforce the workers they need.
0: Thank you very much, Chris Liu. Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center. He's the former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Barack Obama. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisLew44. Well, turning now to the shares of Biogen, they are up more than 14.5%. This comes after Biogen and its Japanese partner revealed results of a study of a drug that is designed to raise hopes for the treatment of Alzheimer's to battle this disease. Here to tell us more about it is Drew Armstrong, our healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow Drew on Twitter at ArmstrongDrew. Okay, Armstrong Drew, What? is the breakthrough that we're seeing and learning about?
4: Well, I wouldn't describe what we saw today, uh, or I guess late last night, technically, so much as a breakthrough, but a glimmer of hope for a medical research field that has seen a lot of glimmers of hope before, followed by what ultimately turned out to be disappointing failures. So uh, late last night, we, we saw this data from uh, Biogen and um, ASI basically saying, hey, we looked at this drug, it's an experimental drug in in mid-stage testing, and it looks like it helped people. There are a lot of caveats. Um, they're using a different measure of whether or not it helped people than than other uh, drug makers have uh, before. Um, that the 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 assistance that it appeared to give patients in slowing the progression of Alzheimer's didn't show up when they when they looked at this in uh, at the twelve month uh, twelve months uh, along in the study. This is just in eighteen months, so it took a little bit longer than expected. And they haven't announced yet. This is really important. One of the things they're not saying uh, so far that's really important they haven't announced that hey this is great and we're going to take this to the next stage a lot of times when you're a drug maker and you have blockbuster good news you say great phase two trial worked on to phase three let's get this in a bigger population that we can use to get this drug approved by the fda that is not in the statements that they have given, and I think that should probably sound a note of caution for people here.
0: Okay, uh, well put, and and really useful uh, information. Drew, the target of this specific drug, they're going after what are co- what is called uh, beta amyloid. Right, and I know that there's another uh, disease. Uh, there's hereditary amyloidosis, and so on. But this has to do with the buildup of a protein. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and uh, if I can kind of explain the science here, one of the things that research have noticed, researchers have noticed for a long time is that if you take an image of an Alzheimer's patient's brain, or if after they die you dissect it, you see these little tangles of protein, essentially like plaque buildup in the brain. That for a long time it's it's definitely known as a hallmark of the disease. You look at people who have this disease, and their brains all have this. I think what hasn't been understood is. Is it also the cause? You know, is this a is this something that is causing the disease or just something that happens to go along with it? And when if it is if if this is what's damaging people's brains, when does it start? Does it start building up silently when we're 40 or 50 years old, only kind of rearing its head in actual Alzheimer's? A decade or two decades later, or is it something that you know you are uh, at an elder age and you begin to show signs, and that's really when the damage begins. But the theory has been that if you can do something to eliminate these plaques or to even stop them from building up, that you might somehow be able to slow Alzheimer's disease.
0: To slow what is causing the build up the in the plaques. Slow the thing that is
4: exactly. So and so, if you can do that, you might, this might be potentially a, a a a drug that could you know actually alter the course of the disease. But so. So far even though a lot of drugs have shown success in reducing the amount of plaque you haven't actually seen the kind of corresponding you know decreases in the rate of dementia or in cognitive decline those things that actually matter i mean it's all great. it's all well and good to treat a biological thing but if it doesn't help the patient it doesn't mean anything for these folks so the question has always been does this drug work on this thing, this plaque, and does that also translate into a benefit? And so there have been some signs in this study that maybe that's the case. But I think the big question is going to be, does it bear out in a wider study? Does it really, truly alter the course of this disease? Or is there somewhere else that drug makers need to be looking? Just
0: quickly, a couple other companies still looking for drugs to combat Alzheimer's, right?
4: Yes. uh, Roche is in this space. Um, Eli Lilly and a number of other folks have looked at some different approaches. You know, drug makers look at this as probably the last great massive untreated disease in in the world. I mean, this affects millions of people. It costs billions and billions of dollars. It is a personal and tragedy for families when it's struck by them. So this is a huge opportunity for someone to try and do something about that has had so many failures.
0: Thank you very much. Drew Armstrong, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Follow him on Twitter at Armstrong Drew for his continued insights and analysis and reporting about the healthcare industry. Very interesting. My co-host and colleague, Lisa Abramowitz, uh, on a well-deserved holiday vacation. He's not on vacation. He's Scott Wren. He's a senior global equity strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Assets under management, $1.9 trillion, based in St. Louis. Scott Wren, always a pleasure. You know, looking at the performance of the S&P 500, it's up three qu- and three and a quarter percent so far this year. Compare that to the NASDAQ, up over 11 percent. The Dow basically unchanged. What kind of market does this remind you of? Well, you know,
1: I tell you, Tim, we um, we have been positive on the market. Technology has done. Uh, we backed off our overweight and technology uh, last year so we left a little money on the table no doubt about that um, small caps are doing a little bit better than what we thought they would this year and I think that's almost solely due to uh, the, the, the the fears over a, a trade war but you know really this 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 market reminds me of periods when it's it's fairly narrow and and you are, you are toward the back end of certain cycles. But saying that, there are, there are numerous other characteristics. One is overwhelming enthusiasm uh, and chasing the market that I think are not um, you know, they're not present right now. So it, it, it largely in narrowness, so to speak, it reminds me of later stages of cycles.
0: Well, when you talk about the lack of enthusiasm, does that mean that you just can't get people interested in stocks? Could that- that be a real secular change because of the way that investments are made using exchange traded funds
1: I think that that could be part of it but really to be honest with you and if you look at, at our clients and I mean we, we cater to retail investors um, most of them let's say you're north of 60 uh, most of them at least on paper they were burned in the tech bubble and then they were burned on when in the financial crisis and now they are older and they and they think in terms of gee I don't have the time to make this money back They they are cont- concerned uh, about you know being down 50% on their portfolio they are concerned about outliving their money and so i think i think the secular change really to be honest with you is that with all this money on the sidelines in Past cycles, and I'm talking, you know, you look back over the last 40 years, um, you know, if the market had moved this far over this time, by this time there'd be a lot of chasing, there'd be a lot of exuberance, um, those types of things. And so I think really the secular change, at least in my uh, opinion, the stronger secular change is that you have money on the sidelines that in no way, shape, or form uh, is going to make it back into the market.
0: So if I go back all the way to January of this year, January 8th for example. That seems
1: like a long time ago, doesn't, doesn't it? Pam? Yeah,
0: but I mean but where that's like 10 points away from where we are now. Right. On the S&P. <laughs> that's 2743, we're at
1: 2759. Yeah, I just, you know, and, and really for us, you know, and you and I had talked, you know, in 2017 multiple times, but you know, we thought we were going to see a pullback, a reasonable pullback, um, the second half of 2017. Uh, it didn't come until the month of February, and it happened very, very fast. It happened for many of the same reasons that we had been uh, looking for, but you know, really, the market had not had uh, uh, had a 10% pullback for for basically two years, and I think, you know, we are over. We you. You know, we were overdue and and i think the trigger um which often happens late in the cycle is things about you know wage inflation general inflation margin squeezes uh, and what's the fed going to do about it so you know this cycle's been very different in a lot of different ways but as we move into what is likely the later you know third if you know third of the cycle or so uh, some of these concerns that are causing the volatility outside of the trade war um, potential, um, are really things that you see late in virtually every cycle.
0: Okay. If that's the case, where's the best place to put money late in a cycle?
1: I, t- I tell you, I think really, you know, industrials have taken it on the chin here, as as uh, as the trade war rhetoric has, has uh, been pretty strong. I still think that uh, there's a relatively low probability that we're going to have an all-out trade war. Certainly, the rhetoric's jumped up a little bit lately is probably the probability. But, you know, we want to take advantage of this weakness in industrials. We've been overweight industrials. We still want to be overweight industrials. We want our clients uh, on weakness in industrials, consumer discretionary, financials. Clearly, if you look back over the last three years, financials have done really well. But obviously, over the last six or 12 months, they've stumbled. Um, But looking forward, you know, we think that's Still going to be a good place to be we think it's too early uh, to hide so we've been underweight utilities we've been underweight staples now have those uh, sectors done well here since uh, February 2nd uh, early February when the market started to get uh, more choppy and we had to pull back sure they have but but I think when you look ahead over the course of the next 12 months you want to be assertive you want to lean toward those sectors that are going to continue to benefit from a continuation of this economy you do not want to Hide. Someday, you know, somewhere out there on the horizon will be time to hide, but I don't think it's now.
0: Now, when you mention industrials, I just want to make sure we're talking about the companies such as, and I'm not saying that you're recommending them, I'm just saying companies such as Honeywell International shares down 4.5% so far this year, shares of Eaton Corp also uh, lower uh, this, t- you know, by 4% this year. Those are the kinds of companies.
1: Yeah, and machinery, and you know those those kinds of things. I mean, you know, if you look at a lot of these, uh, if you look at a lot of these these companies, I mean, they are backlogged well into 2019. And now, if you talk to any industrials analyst, they will tell you that. Uh, the management's of the companies that they cover, they are nervous about uh, the, the the potential for a trade war, a potential for acceleration in this trade rhetoric, which would negatively affect their businesses. You know, but the fact is, um, through this year and into twenty nineteen, um, you know, they are booked up, and 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 most industrial analysts, the guys who are in the in the trenches covering the individual companies, they'll tell you that you will not really be able able to tell if uh, the tax code change uh, was really helpful in terms of CapEx until 2019, at least in the industrial sector, but you know, certainly these CapEx numbers we saw in the fourth quarter before the thing even kicked in were good. First quarter was pretty darn good, and I, and I suspect uh, based on uh, these ISM surveys and some other things that we're doing that, that we're going to see some decent CapEx through uh, the balance of the year as well.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Scott Wren, Senior Global Equity Strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. He's in St. Louis, helping to manage $1.9 trillion of customer assets.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.